In the beginning of Luke's gospel, an angel comes to Mary and tells Mary that she will be the mother of the Son of God. But that's not the only thing the angel tells Mary. The angel also tells Mary that her cousin Elizabeth, who was thought to be barren, is now with child. And in fact, Elizabeth is in her sixth month of pregnancy. So the angel leaves, and what we're told is Elizabeth gets up, and with haste, that's the word it uses, with haste, she sets off to see Elizabeth. Because she realizes that if what the angel said is true about Elizabeth, about her being pregnant, then what the angel said about her must be true as well. And so, of course, she goes to see Elizabeth for confirmation. And when she gets there, Elizabeth is pregnant. And she realizes in that moment that, yes, she will be the mother of the Son of God. And out of her joy, this this spontaneous joy, comes this song. We call it the Song of Mary or the Magnificat. And I'll talk in a second why we call it the Magnificat. Uh, But as David said, this is a very important piece of Scripture in the life of the church. And so I wanted just to spend a few minutes this morning looking at it and reflecting on what it might mean for us. So we've got the text of the Magnificat here. And I'll say the Magnificat can be broken uh, into two parts. The first part of the Magnificat is Mary praising God. She is so excited about this news, so grateful to be blessed in this way, that she begins with praise. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. By the way, that word magnifies in Latin is magnificat. And in the Latin translation, Magnificat is the first word of the song. So that's why we call it Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So that's the first part of the Magnificat. She's praising God, uh, thanking him for this blessing. But then we get to the second part, and this is the part I really want to focus on today, because here she shifts gears, and she begins to talk about what God is going to do through this child, what God is going to accomplish through Jesus. And by the way, it's interesting, she speaks in the past tense, almost as if to say, it's already accomplished. These things are so sure, she can speak in the past tense. She says, speaking of God, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. And sent the rich away empty. I want to pause here and just think about these words that that Mary says as she talks about what God is going to accomplish through Jesus. God will scatter the proud, God will bring down the powerful, God will take away the riches from the wealthy, while at the same time lifting up the lowly and filling the hungry with good things. Now, I think if we're honest about these words, 
what we see is that Mary is, is calling for and proclaiming a social revolution. These words aren't about our individual relationship with God, as important as that is. No, no, Mary is speaking about a revolution that will happen within society. She's saying that God is going to do some radical things and that there will be a reversal of fortune. Uh, there's an image I want to show you. Uh, this is an image by an artist named Ben Wildflower. He posted this online a few years ago. Uh, but it's his interpretation of Mary proclaiming the Magnificat. Uh, and I thought it was just a really powerful image because it's a different picture of Mary than we typically have. Uh, this is a different picture of, of Mary than the Mary down the hall at the uh, Christmas pageant. It's a very revolutionary Mary. And yet I do think it's faithful to this text, the Magnificat. You know, throughout centuries, throughout the history of the church, the poor and the oppressed have identified with this Mary. And they've identified with this song that she sings. They've identified with the promise that in Jesus, God is going to turn the world upside down. In the 1940s, William Temple was the Archbishop of Canterbury, so head of the entire Anglican Communion. And during this time, India was still part of the British Empire. Now, in the 40s, of course, there were a lot of things happening. But in India in the 40s, there was a lot of social unrest. And so what the British were trying to do is they were trying to keep the social unrest under control. Now, it said that William Temple, again, the Archbishop of Canterbury, that he told his missionaries in India not to read the Magnificat aloud in public. So they weren't allowed to read this passage in public because he was afraid that these words might promote a revolution. You know, in India, you have the caste system, uh, which is ingrained in society, and especially in the 40s, that was the case. You're born into a hierarchy. And the fear was that the untouchables, the lowest uh, of Hindu society who had a lot of Christians among them. The fear was that they might use this passage to justify some type of revolt against their servitude. You know, this uh, passage of Scripture was banned in Guatemala in the 1980s for the same reason, for its revolutionary content. C.S. Lewis, uh, there's a really interesting uh, letter in which he is writing about the Magnificat, writing to a friend. And the words that he uses to describe the Magnificat uh, is, or is the word dreadful. That's what he says. He says the song of Mary is a dreadful song. Now, I'm sure that when we just read the Magnificat together, that none of us, when we got to the end of it, thought to ourselves, that is a dreadful piece of Scripture. And yet, C.S. Lewis says this when he reads the Magnificat. It's dreadful. And he does this, I think, because he's honest. I mean, Lewis was a professor at Oxford, a don. He was highly, highly regarded and here you have this young girl who speaks about a God who comes 
and takes the lowly and raises them up. In the high and mighty, he brings low. And Lewis, to his credit, was honest about where he fit in this song. And of course, that's the question for us today, I think, is where do we fit in this song? As I've wrestled with the scripture all week, that's what I keep asking myself. Where do I find myself in this song? I mean, like most of you, I am privileged in so many ways. And so where do I see myself? Do I see myself with the Marys of this world, the lowly, the people of no account? Or do I see myself with the powerful and the prideful? The season of Advent, which we're in right now, it's important to remember that the season of Advent is a season of repentance. And it's important that we are humbled in this season. And, and not, not humbled in a perverse sense, but humbled in the recognition that we are absolute debtors, that we have grieved God, that we are altogether recipients of God's generosity towards us. You know, God calls us to live differently in this world. He calls us to be part of this social revolution, to love our enemies, to care for the poor and the weak, to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of our neighbor. Right? This is a different way of living in the world, and it does radically transform the world. It does, and it has. I mean, the gospel has transformed the world. And we're invited to participate in this transformation. We're invited to find our place in this song. So again, we ask ourselves, where do we fit? Mary tells us that God opposes the proud, the high, the mighty, but he is merciful to those who grieve their sin, who feel forsaken and lonely who are of little account. And so as we prepare for Christmas, may we seek to be humble so that we can receive God when he comes into this world and be part of what he's doing in his creation. Amen.